This is the first time I've ever done this before, so lucky you. <laughs> so let's start off with um, a little bit of a story. It was, like Chris said, it was almost a year ago that I got a text message from Chris saying, um, so when are you going to preach? And I said, um, what? You can't really see it very well there, but he says, what, what? And I said, maybe I'm just waiting to walk in one Sunday and be handed a mic. And he goes, ha ha, I already know that. Uh, but that quip comes from back when we started in Edgerton. And we didn't have all the people in the place, in place that we have now. And so it wasn't uncommon for Chris to ask a person as they're coming in if they would help with liturgy or reading the scripture or speaking before a song, all those kinds of little things. And, um, and I ended up being one of those people sometimes. It also became apparent during that time that I was comfortable with a mic, and I was typically ready to share if given the opportunity. So it was an appropriate joke. But it was also a deflection of, of sorts. What Chris didn't know was that his question touched a place that I had been carefully avoiding for quite some time. I'll probably get a little emotional to begin with. He told me, this is a side note, yeah. He told me, like, you should probably add a personal story. It doesn't have to be deep, just it can be whatever, but we're apparently going to go a little deeper. Um, so I'd been avoiding this place for some time. It was easier to joke about it and find out why he was asking rather than reply with anything more serious. So it turns out, as he just was saying, that God had been giving him the desire to train and empower more people, and giving them the opportunity to share a message was one of the ways he planned to do that. Uh-oh, it went too far. Uh, Chris also didn't know that for many, many years, I've known that something like this was coming. Back in 2005, which was somehow 18 years ago, I was telling a story to a small group of friends. Nothing, I can't even remember what the story was. But when I finished, one of them turned to me and said, you're going to speak to a lot of people. I remember that, um, and that even, even then it wasn't a revelation, but a confirmation. Um, and that moment has stuck with me, crystal clear even now. Uh, there have been other things spoken over me and to me since then, but the years went by and things didn't go as I thought they would. I lost a dear friend in a painful way. Uh, we moved for a job and were unable to continue the house church with people that we so loved. Um, and that isolation eventually led my husband to questioning things. So, if I'm honest, I was probably riding on the coattails of my upbringing and um, the previous years of fellowship rather than doing much growing myself during that time. Add to that kids and moving and homeschooling and it was way easier to pack that away, pack that call away in my heart and just try to keep my head above water. So, Chris's text brought up a lot of feels, including a little bit of fear, but I also knew that I needed to do this because it was God's timing and it was really no surprise. I also think that I should have started writing a year ago because even though I've known since March what I wanted to talk about, putting together good thoughts and insights over time is into one message is not easy. <laughs> but thankfully Chris was here to help with encouragement, with feedback and fleshing out some thoughts, and so... We're going to dive in and see how this goes. This past month was our annual OTCC Identity Series, that annual trek through what it means to be Open Table Community Church, how we function, what our motivations are, 
what it means for all of us to be in community together, and who we are in the body of Christ. This year, the past, for the past four weeks, Chris spoke about our heads, our hearts, and our hands. What we put in our heads, we eventually become. He spoke of how we can't just change our own hearts. We need Holy Spirit to give us a new heart so we bear his fruits. And as we fill our heads and our hearts with the things of God, from that place, we can be his hands as we engage our hands and efforts towards his kingdom. We serve and love one another by doing the work we were created to do. This week, I get to be the one who kicks off a month of guest speakers, I'd like to do a case study of a man who got stuck in that process of engaging his head, his heart, and his hands. Unfortunately, it did not end well for him. But I want to look at his story because as neat and tidy as it sounds to put the right information in our heads so that God can transform our hearts and we can get to work doing what God called us to do with our hands, it's entirely possible and even easy to get stuck in the process and lose sight of what really matters. The story, or this morning's story is about Saul, who became the first king of Israel. Israel was under the rule and guidance of judges and prophets, which basically means they were under the rule and reign of God, with these judges and prophets acting as mediators of that relationship between God and his people. But the Israelites grew dissatisfied with this system. And they wanted a king like the surrounding nations, They were warned by the prophet Samuel of all the ills of being ruled by a king, but the people persisted, and God gave them what they asked for. It actually took the prophet Samuel longer to process and get over the people's decision than it took for God to get over it. Sound familiar for anybody else? It takes us longer to get over things. But once Samuel finally wrapped his mind around what was happening, the way it happens is pretty interesting. Saul, who was the front-running candidate, was the son of a wealthy and influential Benjaminite. And he was described as the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Kingly, right? Well, at this point, when we're first introduced to Saul, he's not just handsome. He's a dutiful son. And when his father's donkeys have gone missing, Saul grabs a servant and sets out to search for them. The future king and his servant go through the entire region searching for the lost animals, but can't find the donkeys anywhere. Finally, after days of searching, when they're about to give up, the servant has an epiphany and suggests seeking out the man of God um, who lives in Zuf to see if he can give them some direction. So after scrounging up some change to offer in payment, they go into the town and find the prophet Samuel. What Saul doesn't know is that the day before, God told Samuel that he, Samuel, would have to go, or wouldn't have to go hunting for a king because God would send a man from the tribe of Benjamin right to Samuel to be anointed leader and rescuer of Israel. Now here's a little side note that Chris gave me that has nothing to do with our message this morning because even from a supporting role, he can't seem to pass up a good rabbit trail. <laughs> this next part is verbatim. Sometimes when you lose your donkeys, and for the record, Chris really wanted me to use a different word for donkeys, but sometimes when you lose your donkeys, it's actually God's way of driving you, and the buttons went crazy, it's actually God's way of driving you to the very person or people who are going to speak into your life what God has called you to be. And a side note to his side note is you could probably say I was looking for donkeys when I ended up at Open Table. 
Back to our story. God points out Saul, this kingly-looking man, to Samuel, and this is their interaction. Just then, Saul approached Samuel at the gateway and asked, Can you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up to the place of worship ahead of me. We will eat there together, and in the morning I'll tell you what you want to know and send you on your way. And don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago. They've been found. And I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. What? Can you imagine that? Saul's just hoping to get a clue about some lost donkeys. And this man of God is telling him he's the hope of Israel. Clearly, Samuel is not in the habit of dreaming big, or Saul is not in the habit of dreaming big, because this is his response in verse 21. Saul replied, But I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Now, to fully understand this answer, we should um, get a little more backstory here. The tribe of Benjamin's reputation, which Saul seems to be carrying in this passage, is established back in the book of Judges, chapters 19 through 21. There was a Levite with an unfaithful concubine, which just kind of shows you the moral tone, the atmosphere of this era's history, because concubines shouldn't be unfaithful. Right. But Levites really shouldn't have concubines, so there's that. But at any rate, this Levite had to go retrieve his concubine who had gone back to her father's house. And while they were traveling back home, they stopped in the region of Gibeah, of the tribe of Benjamin. And they stayed the night in another sojourner's home, somebody who was staying in the area. In a really bizarre turn of events, the concubine is taken and abused through the night by some men described in the Bible as worthless. The Levite, finding her dead on the doorstep the next morning, reports the incident to the rest of the tribes of Israel and calls on them to do something about it. When the Benjaminites refuse to give up the worthless fellows, war is waged on them. The tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. 25,000 of them are struck down, and only 600 men are left. And that's only because, in their cowardice, they ran away from the fight. The Bible says the men of valor are the ones who died. In a land like Israel, this type of incident can shape a tribe's identity and reputation for a very long time. When Saul says he's from Benjamin, and Benjamin is the smallest tribe, he means the smallest tribe. Because in Saul's day, they really haven't rebuilt their numbers. And I would guess there's some shame about their tribal history as well. Saul lived in Gibeah, where the concubine was abused and murdered, so he would very likely be familiar with that story. He's from a tribe that chose to shelter wicked men instead of giving them up for judgment. And in a weird way, almost even more shameful, is the fact that the ones who survived the ensuing war were the cowards who ran from battle. In fact, Benjamin's reputation was so damaged that the rest of Israel shunned them by pledging never to give their daughters to a Benjamite. Now, they found some creative workarounds, like, hey, go steal the daughters of Shiloh when they come out to dance during the Feast of the Lord. Because even though they waged war on them, they didn't want to completely blot out the tribe of Israel. It's a whole thing. But you can see how all of this history works to shape Saul's almost knee-jerk response about his tribe and clan. It's hard for him to even fathom that someone from his tribe would be blessed and raised up by God. Before he's even had time to process anything, Samuel has said, 
or sorry, before he's even had time to process anything Samuel had said to him. His first instinct is is to say, but wait, I'm from Benjamin. Well, regardless of Saul's immediate response and his obvious confusion, the following morning Samuel anoints Saul, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then Samuel, apparently to reassure Saul, gives a list of signs that will confirm what he says, and all of them, of course, come to pass. So Saul has all kinds of confirmations that he is the man for the job, including the spirit of the Lord rushing on him, causing him to prophesy. And on top of all of this, the Bible says that God gave Saul another heart, or a new heart. So one would think that when Samuel calls the people together to declare that God has chosen to give them a king, Saul would be ready and raring to go. But no. The donkeys are home safe. Samuel has anointed him. All of Samuel's signs came to pass. The Spirit of God came upon him. He has a new heart. All of these things, and still no. Saul hides among the baggage and refuses to come before the crowd. In an almost comic twist to the story, God himself has to give away Saul's hiding place. But they do finally get him to come out, and here's what Samuel says about him. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts touched, or God had touched. But some of the worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. To Saul's credit, he has just gone through some amazing things. His past several days were no doubt a roller coaster, and now God's prophet has anointed and declared him to be king, and the people seem to accept him. But, of course, a few doubt and despise him, but Saul seems to ignore that, and he stays silent about it. Now, at this point, Saul does go on to defeat the Ammonites, and the kingdom of Israel is renewed, and the people seem to truly accept Saul, and everyone rejoices, including Saul. He seems to have truly stepped into his role, and the decision to ask God for a king seems to be a good one. Things are going well. But then Saul makes a mistake. When he's fighting the Philistines, and the Israelites kind of have their backs up against a wall, Saul becomes impatient while waiting on Samuel to come make a burnt offering. There were certain forms and rituals that were part of fighting uh, in the Lord's battles. Without them, the Israelites are just a marauding army rather than the hosts of God's kingdom. So these things are very important. Well, the appointed time passes with no prophet on the scene to usher God's presence into the battle. And after waiting as long as he felt he possibly could wait, Samuel says, or Saul says, bring it here. I'm going to do it myself. And he steps out of the position he's been called to and into a position that's not his. And as soon as the burnt offering has been sacrificed, Samuel shows up. And instead of sacrificing the animals as he was called to do, he rebukes Saul. Now, if Saul's misstep stopped there, maybe it would still be okay. But unfortunately, that's just the beginning. 
full loss of the Lord's favor happens during the next great military campaign. Um, Saul was directed by God to strike down the Amalekites. He was to completely destroy everyone and everything. Men, women, women, children and infants, ox, sheep, camels, donkeys, the normal spoils of war. All of it. Nothing was to be spared or kept. But Saul and his men took the king of the Amalekites alive and kept the best of the livestock. The Bible says they kept everything that appealed to them. Now, Saul had taken 210 men into the battle, and the Bible says they kept everything that appealed to them. This is significant because winning battles and keeping spoils was one of the primary ways an army provided for itself. So you might imagine the authority and respect a king would have to have in order to be able to command his 210,000 men that this battle would be fought with, uh, and won pro bono. No spoils. No pay. Saul would really need to be the king on this day. And of course, he's not. They keep the spoils. The Lord tells this to Samuel, who becomes angry and goes the next morning to meet Saul. Saul greets him as though all is well. Hey, how's it going? He boasts of a great victory. But Samuel retorts by asking why he hears the bleeding and lowing of the animals that should have been slain. You would hope that Saul might act like a king and take a stand for why he decided to change the battle plan. But instead, the king basically blames his men and says they are the ones who uh, brought the animals to sacrifice to God. But Samuel is having none of it. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Saul knew what he was supposed to do. He knew he shouldn't have kept the king alive or allowed the soldiers to keep the best livestock. But instead of making his men adhere to the command... His kingly command from God, he let them do what they would. It was at this point, reading Samuel's rebuke and Saul's excuses, that I was really drawn to this story. Listen to what Samuel said, what the seer saw. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? the Lord anointed you king over Israel. I don't think Saul ever fully bought into the idea that he was king. And once you see it, you can't help but see it through Saul's entire tragic story. At the beginning of the story, when the man of God speaks into his life, Saul is carrying the guilt and shame of his tribe, and it keeps him from even entertaining the idea that maybe God has bigger plans for his life. After receiving signs and a new heart on coronation day, Saul hides. And when men speak out against his newly ordained rule with the blessings of Samuel and the adoration of the majority of the people, rather than quieting any dissenting voice as any other king on the planet would have, Saul allows it. I think maybe because those voices were echoing his own fears and doubts. 
When on the day of battle, the prophet is later than the men think he should be, Saul is faced with the curiosity of wondering if his men will wait longer simply because he was the king and he said to wait. But rather than find out how far his authority would go, Saul grew impatient and claimed an authority that wasn't his at all. And when faced with the challenge of commanding his army to attack the enemy without the normal spoils, Saul again refuses to step up and be the king he was called to be. Saul was stuck. And I think Samuel knew exactly why. Though you are little in your own eyes. The Hebrew word here for little is katon, which means small, young, or unimportant. After almost the entire nation cheering him into his role, after years of being king, many successful battles against the enemies of Israel, Saul still saw himself as Catan. Unimportant. And maybe the only thing more dangerous to the purposes of God in our lives than thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, thinking less of ourselves than we should. What might have happened if Saul had believed what God said about him? What might have happened if Saul sought the Lord instead of trying to make it work on his own? What might have happened if Saul had fully stepped into the identity God had given him? I think, I think the reason Saul's kingship turned into failure is that Saul couldn't accept that he really was the king. That he was chosen by God for that role. And that disbelief loses Saul the role that God had given him, and he's replaced with David. David also starts his story as Katon, small, young, and unimportant. His family didn't even call him in from the pastures when Samuel came to anoint a new king. This never seemed to hinder David. He seems to simply trust what God said about him. David was Katon when his brothers were at war and he was sent to DoorDash them some sandwiches. He was Katon when his brothers mock him for asking some questions about the giant making fun of Israelites. He was Katon when he tried on Saul's armor, but it was too big. The giant made fun of him for being Katon. But David said, I come at you in the name of the Lord, which is not at all Katon. We see the seeds of true identity when David was running from Saul, who wanted to kill him. David had a couple chances to kill Saul, but didn't. Why? David says it was because he couldn't lift his hands to God's anointed. In other words, David recognizes something about Saul that Saul himself doesn't even fully grasp. And that is that if God says Saul is king... And Saul is king. That means something. We see David owning his identity when he danced in worship. And his response to his wife's disdain was that he was dancing before the Lord who chose me. David was saying, I was dancing for God. And he chose me. And this is my response to his goodness. 
We see it in David's prayers and poetry when he recognizes his smallness yet chooses to focus on God's greatness and God's call on his life. We see it in the way David seeks the Lord and inquires of him and disregards ideas of smallness or weakness. He can't be bothered with those. God has things for him to do. Saul thought little of himself from the beginning all the way through, regardless of the things God accomplished through him. And his life ended in disaster for himself and for many of those around him. David, on the other hand, seems almost never to have thought of himself at all, except where his life might point out God's graciousness and magnify God. And now he's known as one of the greatest kings of Israel and a man after God's own heart, an example we often point to. And here's the deal. The difference between Saul and David wasn't that Saul thought that he, Saul, was worthless, and that David thought that he, David, was awesome. David actually didn't think very highly of himself, in all honesty. David was invited to marry the king's daughter, and at first he refused because he was the son of a poor man and unworthy to be the king's son-in-law, even though women were singing songs about his greatness, but... David was not arrogant. The difference between Saul and David wasn't their self-esteem. The difference was in who they, what they believed about who God said they were. The difference was their faith. David believed God, and Saul did not. God told Saul he was king, and Saul never believed him. God told David the same thing, and David lived every day believing what God said. So the question is, how will we choose to live? Which example will we follow? Saul or David? Will we believe God? Or will we think too little of ourselves, too little of God's ability to equip and use us? Remember, what we look at, we become. What we focus on, what plays in our minds, that's what we become. When we think katan of ourselves, instead of believing what God says about us, we will miss out on so much of what God has planned for us. When we think, but also, when we think too often of ourselves, we forget God. We forget the redemption Jesus won. We forget that we have full access to Holy Spirit who lives in us and equips us for God's call in our lives. There's a a Chinese minister that lived in like the 20s through the the 70s, 1920s through the 70s. His name is Watchman Nee, and I like his statement on the matter. We may be weak, but looking at our own weakness will never make us strong. As Christians, we often get sucked into this idea of humility that plays out as self-deprecation. Like, if we tear ourselves down, it will keep us from growing prideful. But you know what? Jesus never apologized for who he was. Paul had no problem stating his qualifications and calling. Peter spoke with boldness 
even though he had the shameful event in his past of denying Jesus three times. We don't have to continue bringing up our failures to be humble. We simply stop making it about us in the first place. So how do we become strong? How do we live as God intended us to live? How do we do the good works that he has for us? We look to Jesus. We seek God. We trust that when we believe on Jesus, we have access to him, and he changes us. He defines us now. What he says is what matters. We should no longer identify ourselves by past mistakes, past rejections, slights, or hurts. We should not succumb to any lies that would make us believe we are not good enough, that we are unqualified, or that we are katan, unimportant. No. We are weak and small in comparison to God. But a dear friend of mine said, our covenant God comes low to lovingly redeem us from our limiting ideas into a glorious definition of being that offers eternal value and a secure, steadfast identity. We're low, but God comes low. And maybe even lower to lift us up because he knows we need that. Why would we ever want to live in a way that would keep us from being what God made us to be? We must continue to believe God. We must remember how he sees us. Because only then can we live in a way that truly glorifies him and edifies those around us. So how do we respond? What has God spoken over you? What has God said about you? Do you even know? If you don't, I highly recommend spending some time in prayer and asking him. Or find yourself a prophet. But there's also always God's written word. Chris shared a great verse last week. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. You could start there. We're his workmanship. The New Living Translation says his masterpiece. That's you. That's all of us. Do you believe that? I know I struggle to believe that. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one shying away from a call that God has placed in my life. I would hazard a guess that there are others in this room and watching online who know they're supposed to be doing something. But doubts, fear, and lack of seeking the Lord are standing in the way. But here's the deal. When we don't live out what we're meant to do, we don't only affect our own lives, but those around us. So take a look at the people around you. We need you to be who God created you to be. 
When Saul wouldn't step up and be the king God called him to be, the entire nation suffered. We need you to believe what God says about you and refuse to allow lies and negative self-talk a place in your mind. You can't be doing that. You can't do that and enter into the promises of God because you will be paralyzed. Because fear, doubt, and shame will keep you from obeying the voice and commands of God. Something I should have added in here is we need you to encourage us to do the same thing. I know it's pretty much impossible to keep out all of the bad thoughts if you don't have someone else to discuss it with or someone else speaking truth in your life. We need each other. That's that point. Chris talked last week about how healthy people create a healthy community and then a healthy community creates healthy people who create healthy community. What a vicious cycle that I would love for us to get into. That all starts by believing. Believing that you are who God says you are. And believing that God is who he says he is. So the way I would love to respond to this is to be honest with ourselves and to work toward being unapologetic about who we are in Christ. Begin to fill your mind with the things of God and look to him for your identity. Then launch out into the good works that God has prepared for you trusting that he knew exactly what he was doing when he called you to them.